we are going through church history in kind of a unique way, different than I had taught church history uh, seven or eight years ago when I taught it. Uh, some of the same things, but, but things have moved. I think today is an extremely important class. And I was a little bit concerned about how to go about teaching it. And the reason why is because we live in an expanding environment from an intellectual basis. We have access to Google. And Google changes the way we think. Google changes the way we are informed. Because we have access to Google, we can find all sorts of things. Now, Google and the Internet have been around long enough for us to generally know that not everything we read is true. But we still have access to that data. And my fear is, is that we live in an age where sometimes our knowledge about a subject is fairly thin. Because we are almost headline people more than we are substance and depth. And so this morning, as we're talking about this, to me, this is a very important issue because there are works that are out there that are popular in the world that challenge what many of us believe, what most of us believe. And I fear sometimes we don't have the depth to respond and accurately analyze those, those challenges. Now, within that frame of reference, I am a huge fan of questioning the very fundamentals of what we believe. I believe if it's done responsibly, it leads to great insight and it leads to a firmer foundation for our faith. But we need to be careful and we need to be responsible when we do it. So this morning, what I want us to look at are what are so-called the lost scriptures. Ah, this is going to be interesting. Hold on, my computer is working for you, but it's not working for me. Now it's working for both of us. What I want to talk about this morning are the so-called lost scriptures. And you've seen the, the headlines on TV or on the newspaper or on Google. The headlines that say, oh, the gospel of Judas has been found. Or the, the secret writing that tells about the, the marriage of Jesus and Mary. Or you might have seen some of the best-selling books, and we'll talk about those shortly. But I want to introduce this by telling you about the very first house I bought. It was in 1984. I was a baby lawyer, and uh, 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 I wanted to, to buy my first house. Now, I did not have very much money. I didn't have much for the down payment, and I didn't have much money that I could spend on the house. So every penny counted. But I wanted to get the best house I could for the money. And I found this brand new home. It was in Copperfield. It had been built by Pulte Homes. And I looked at it, it was, it was uh, um, in my budget, just barely. And I looked at it, and it was a typical 
subdivision tract home. It had uh, the two-car garage. If you parked very carefully, you could get two cars in there. It had two trees. It had, uh, it looked, did not look like every house in the subdivision. It looked like every fourth house in the subdivision. <laughs> and it was, it was brand new and it was pretty. And then it, you went into the backyard and the backyard was all just sand. There was no landscaping. They only landscaped the front yard so it would be looked real pretty. And then they would tell you, that there's no landscaping in the backyard because they knew as a new homeowner you'd want to have your own project. So that's the sales pitch they would use, um, which means they saved money on the backyard. And so I bought it, and here I was, this 23-year-old lawyer in Houston, Texas, and I wanted to make that backyard special. And I didn't know the first thing about gardening in, 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 in Houston. I grew up in Lubbock. Now, in Lubbock, we have something that they don't really have here. It's called soil. <laughs> here they have this clay gumbo that is not soil. And in Lubbock, you had soil. And if you didn't like the soil, that's okay, because every spring, new soil would blow in. <laughs> and you get a whole new set. So... I go there and I quickly realized, I thought, wow, I got the one backyard that has a kind of a sand instead of clay gumbo. No, it was clay gumbo until the top three-fourths of an inch. And that's just where they spread the sand out so you couldn't see all the nut grass on the clay gumbo that was about to grow up through the sand and destroy any hope you have of putting in any yard at any time in the near future. But I didn't know that. I bought it and I went to work at first putting in my first flower bed. Now, I didn't have much money, so I had to be very, very careful. But I had seen flower beds that look really pretty. They have this real pretty dark mulch. And I thought that must be what's going to keep the nut grass that's already starting to come up from really taking over the bed. So I went out there, and I bought these plants, and I tried to dig and put them in the ground. And I had trouble doing that because after you go through a three-fourths of an inch of sand, you hit the clay gumbo that you can't dig in. And so I managed to put in some plants. Uh, just the bare minimum that I could afford in this bed. And then for mulch, I didn't know what that mulch stuff was. So I just went and bought some. Um, what I bought for the mulch, well, that's the clay gumbo, by the way, with the little three-fourths of an inch of sand above it. See, that's the sand. Got it? So what I bought for mulch, I thought would be pretty good, and it was the cheapest thing they had. It was called sphagnum peat moss. Now, it turns out, I've learned, sphagnum peat moss is not mulch. In fact, if you hold it in your hands, it's very lightweight. Because when you're naive and you put it on your bed that you've worked so hard for and you've spent your last penny on it and you have no more money with which to do anything, it looks really good until it rains. And then it floats down and it's gone forever. <laughs> it is not the same as mulch. This came to my mind getting ready for this week's lesson as I was writing it because I think for all of us, there is a challenge of what I call healthy scholarship. 
the challenge of not simply being surface deep and having a level of knowledge that might look real nice and pretty, but only goes down about three-fourths of an inch. The challenge of not just being something that washes away in the rain, but the challenge of really learning things and studying things to an adequate depth to where you feel like and, and, and you truly can say that this is well thought out and fairly well understood. Or at least you're able to draw parameters and say, this is how much I think is fairly understood. This is how much I really don't understand at all. And here's something in the middle. People are always coming up to me and saying, hey, you have a degree in Greek. You have a degree in Hebrew. Can you translate this? My favorite thing to say, Weston, is I know enough Greek and Hebrew to know I'm not a Greek and Hebrew scholar. There there are parameters. Now, I can do the Lord's Prayer in Greek, okay? But that doesn't make me where I'm just going to be able to sit down and translate some Byzantine text that was written 350 A.D. or 450 A.D. There there are some, some, some lines that you need to understand that. And now, here's the reason this is important. We have opportunities in this world, and our children will have opportunities. I've got three nephews over here, four nephews over here. I've got, how many nephews? i got five nephews over here. i got two daughters, and I have a daughter's boyfriend over here. Now, he's, he's okay. He's okay. I'm not saying he's great. But he's okay. Nah, we love Rigo. All right. They're going to one day go to college. One of them's already in college. And, and then they're going to go out on their own. And one of them is going to be walking in an airport and they're going to see some book like Bart Ehrman's Lost Scriptures. It was a bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. And they're going to think, ooh, that looks interesting. Lost Scriptures. Books that did not make it into the New Testament. And they may pick up the back cover and they may say, Bart Ehrman, he's got a great scholastic pedigree. Dr. Land, before he went to Oxford, went to Princeton, I believe. Bart Ehrman, PhD from Princeton in Greek, studied under Bruce Metzger, an outstanding Bruce Metzger, an outstanding biblical scholar. Greek scholar, New Testament Greek scholar, I should say. And, 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 he, and, and Bart's got an outstanding scholastic pedigree, has done some really fine scholastic work, has the Loeb Classical Library uh, translation for the Apostolic Fathers, and he did a, a, a marvelous job at it. So you get this book and you see this fellow with a great scholastic pedigree, and look at the subject. Can it be any more important than scriptures? That's an important subject, right? It is to my nephews, it is to me, it is to my children. And look at that intriguing subtitle. Books that did not make it into the New Testament. Unless you have any concern about the authenticity of these books, look at the picture. That's real authentic looking, isn't it? By the way, that's not a real picture of the books that didn't make it into the New Testament. That's like artistic license. But it looks really good. 
And so you pick Bart's book up and you start reading it. You might even spend $19 to get the hardbound copy. And when you open it up and you start reading it, you learn that his argument is a bit like the Rock'em Sock'em robots I grew up with. Here's what Bart suggests, no, not suggests. Here's the case Bart asserts is just a gimme case. He's not saying, hey, I've got this idea that just might be right. He writes dogmatically. He writes as if, hey, this is the way it is. I'm smart. I know this. You're not knowing it or you wouldn't be reading my book. So let me come out of my ivory tower long enough to inform you about this very important subject. You might believe... That the Bible is something that is authentic in itself. The New Testament. But on core questions. Questions like, who was Jesus? Questions like, what is it to be a Christian? What's Christian versus not Christian? He says there was a huge fight over this in the early church. It was a slugfest. And the New Testament that we have is not some authentic reflection of New Testament Christianity. The New Testament are just some writings that were chosen by the winner of the slugfest that took place in the 200s, 300s, and 400s. There were all sorts of Christianities and all sorts of views of Jesus, and they had a big knockdown, drag out fight over the centuries, and the winner called themselves Orthodox. It was the winner of the slugfest who said, We're Orthodox, we're the accepted real faith. And those writings that we believe in are the ones we now call the New Testament. So Bart says that the New Testament, the New Testament, this is actually the Old and New Testament, but I'll use it because it's got the New Testament in it. The New Testament are just accumulated writings Approved, selected, chosen by the winners of the slugfest. And then the winners declared that the losers were heretics. And tried to burn and destroy all of the writings of the losers. And they became the lost scriptures. And if you don't know what you're doing in your faith, and you read this, you might be bothered. If you know what you're doing in your faith and you read this, you might be bothered.
And so, rather than me tell you what Bart says, let me put it up in his words. Bart says the following. Only one set of early Christian beliefs emerged as victorious in the heated disputes over what to believe and how to live that were raging in the early centuries of the Christian movement. These beliefs and the groups who promoted them came to be thought of as orthodox. The victorious were orthodox. He continues, and alternative views such as the view that there are two gods or that the true God did not create the world or that Jesus was not actually human or not actually divine, etc., came to be labeled as heresy. And so Bart goes back and he finds these old scriptures, so-called, and says these are, are what were attempted to be destroyed by the victors. But in truth of fact, what we have today is far from authentic Christianity. Here's where he ends it. Moreover, the victors in the struggles to establish Christian orthodoxy not only won their theological battery, ba- ba- theological battles, they also rewrote the history of the conflict. Later readers then naturally assumed that the victorious views had been embraced by the vast majority of Christians from the very beginning all the way back to Jesus and his closest followers, the apostles. Do you see the problem? Do you see the challenge Bart Ehrman puts to those who believe in the authenticity of our collection of scriptures? Well, here's what I'd like to do. Is the New Testament simply the victor in a game of rock'em, sock'em robots? Is that what it is? You know, there's an easy way to do this. Let's test it. Let's go to the Elmo for a moment. How many of you finished at least third grade? All right, about 90%. Everybody but a couple of people from Arkansas. And I did not say that. I did not say that. Janet Seifert, that did not come out of my mouth. Okay. Here, we're going we're gonna to do, do something we all learned by third grade. If the math test says 6 plus 2. Hold on, let's make it big enough for everybody. Six plus two equals eight. Now, can we test that? We test it by going eight minus two, and eight minus two should equal six. We can test it, right? We can test what Bart Ehrman says, too. If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. We can test what Bart Ehrman says. Let's just test it. 
Let's don't write a popular book that challenges faith, doesn't footnote anything, doesn't give you any good authorities to go back to references to look at of much. And instead of just reading it, let's actually examine it. Let's read it critically. And let's examine the scholarship and see if it's deep enough to hold a plant. This is a picture. I don't know if you know what that is or not. That is uh, what we might call a winner selfie. That's the victor. They, they said at the Council of Nicaea, okay, everybody over here, let's hold up the Nicene Creed and let's get a selfie. And, and they took this picture at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Now, in truth, that may not actually be a selfie. That may be a later. Uh, no, obviously, they didn't have iPhones. So, all right. This is a picture of the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea, these are the victors, as Bart Ehrman would call them. The Council of Nicaea produced something called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is what we today can call orthodoxy. This is the victors. This is what we want to test. We want to look at the Nicene Creed and say, gee, is that just one of a collection of writings that the victors who rewrote history established as authentic faith? Or might it genuinely reflect the theology of the apostolic church? No rewrite needed. Well, let's look at it. Here's what the Nicene Creed says, its original form. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, by whom Jesus, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and made man. He suffered on the third day, rose again, ascended into heaven, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And, going back to the we believe, we believe in the Holy Spirit. That is orthodoxy. And the question that we want to test is, was this a rewrite claiming apostolic authority when in fact it's just the theology of the winners of theological rock'em sock'em robots? So let's look. Now, what I'd like to do is examine these simply from some writings that even Bart Ehrman will agree are authentic. So we're going to go to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Now, Bart would not agree that Ephesians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, the Pastorals, he would not agree that those are authentic Pauline writings. So we'll leave them aside. We won't use them. 
let's just look at some writings that even Bart Ehrman's going to have to agree are authentic writings of Paul as he wrote to the apostolic church that Paul himself in missionary zeal helped start. We'll look at the church in Corinth, which Paul established in his second missionary journey. We'll look at that through the writings of we call 1 Corinthians. We'll look at the church in Philippi through a writing that we call Philippians. And we'll look at the church in Rome, which was already established before Paul made his journey there. But Paul wrote to them beforehand in a book we call, a letter we call, Romans. And we can examine Paul's writings to see, is the Nicene Creed, is orthodoxy a reflection of apostolic teaching, or is it merely the winner in the heresy fight? And a reconst- and the, the writings then a reconstruction. So let's start. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. Now, we don't need to even go to Paul for that, though we find that in Paul. But that's Old Testament stuff. That wasn't the winner out of a church. Those are Jewish scriptures. You can read the Shema. You can read Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. God is one. You can read it's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That statement of orthodoxy is not something that the Christians ginned up in 325 AD to quell the, 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 the heretics out there that lost the theological battle. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. Let's go to the next line. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Is that manufactured or is it authentic? Consider, for example, what Paul has to say in Romans 5. And see if perhaps we can find authenticity for this statement. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 Look at Romans 5.15. The free gift, he's talking about the free gift of our salvation, is not like the trespass. He's referencing here the sin of Adam. Or if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that grace of that, how many? One man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Keep going. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also, may, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our 
Lord. One Lord, Jesus Christ. That's not made up. That actually is an authentic, if we go back to the PowerPoint, that's an authentic affirmation of apostolic doctrine. That's not, oh, gee, the winner in an argument over Gnostic heresy. No, that's that's what Paul was writing to the Romans, devoid of any Gnostic issue at the time. The Gnostic invasion of the church is not happening at that point, even if there are some rudimentary seeds as some some Greek philosophy is, is bounding in. But no, this is early, early. Look at the next phrase. We believe in one God, I mean, the, the one Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of God. Go back to Romans 5, 10 and 11. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Who do you think he's talking about? The death of his son. Who's the son of God? If it's not Jesus, then we're not reading the context. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Back to the PowerPoint. We believe in Jesus as the Son of God. That's not something that came out of the Rock'em Sock'em robot fight. That is genuine apostolic doctrine. Let's test the next line. Begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Well, let's try that out. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. What does Paul have to say? Paul, to make sure we're talking about the right person, we'll go back to verse 5. Have this mind or attitude, uh, same mind attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Greek can read, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of who? He was in the form of God. Being of one substance with the Father. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Go back to the PowerPoint. Begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. He became a man, but he wasn't manufactured. He already existed. He was in the very form of God, being of one substance with the Father. Paul said, have the same attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or being made in the likeness of man. That's very apostolic. 
Let's keep going through the test. By whom all things were made. Is that some uh, rewrite of history? No. Go to Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. There exists for us one God. I told you it wasn't just in Deuteronomy 6, 4. One God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second line. That, that's the beginning of the creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in the one Jesus Christ our Lord. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Go back to the PowerPoint. By whom all things were made. Through whom are all things. John says the same thing in the uh, 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 Gospel of John, chapter 1, but Bart would accord that as being non-apostolic in just a later writing, so we're not going there. We're just sticking with ones that are authentic, even by his admission, to run the test on his math, his logic. We believe in Jesus, one Lord, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. Lots of stuff on this. Look at the Philippians passage as it continues. Look at Romans 3, Romans 5. But if you go back to that Philippians 2 passage. Philippians 2. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at Romans 3.24. You'll know Romans 3.23, probably. It's a favorite verse for many. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, which is actually in the Greek. Charis is a gift, a present. As a gift, doros, another word for gift. So it's justified by His gift as a gift, by His grace as a gift, through the redemption of, that is in Christ Jesus. He came down for our salvation. Romans 5, 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. While we were still weak. Where is it? There it is. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So if we go back and look at the creed, the creed is not stating something brand new. It's not stating a victor's rewrite. It truly is documenting authentic apostolic faith. That Jesus Christ 
came down for our salvation, was incarnate and was made man for us, for our salvation. He suffered on the third day. He rose again and ascended into heaven. Is that a rewrite of history or apostolic? First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, I would remind you, brethren, of which terms I used when I preached to you the gospel. I preached to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word. And look at what the gospel was as Paul preached it. The apostolic gospel, not the rewrite of church history. The apostolic gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then Paul goes on to give a footnote reference of all the people that can be checked on if they have any doubt at all whether or not Jesus was resurrected. Because there were still people alive who had seen it. Not one, not two, but hundreds of people. He suffered. The third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. That is apostolic Christianity. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Paul continues this in 1 Corinthians. He writes about it in 1 Thessalonians. But the 1 Corinthians 15 passage where we were reading before... All we need to do is go to verse 23. Paul's talking about the resurrection will experience. And he says, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He comes, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The last thing he puts to death is death itself. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 4.16, we'll throw that up here real quick. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul says to them, in essence, I don't want you to be unaware. See, the Thessalonians were worried that Jesus might have already come, and they missed it. And Paul's writing them, and he says, I don't want you to be worried about this. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry and command. And the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll always be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. Not because this is a rewrite of the church later, but because this is authentic Christianity. We believe in the Holy Spirit. You can't miss that from Paul. Over and over and over, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.10, Romans 8.26. Look at the 1 Corinthians passage. This idea of the Holy Spirit's not some later church concoction. The Holy Spirit, when Paul's talking to us about wisdom and the things of God, in 1 Corinthians 2.10, he told the church at Corinth, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Because the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. He goes on to say, who knows a person's thought except the spirit, spirit of the person. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. This is not some nouveau idea. So now, we've got the Nicene Creed. We've got orthodoxy. We can test whether or not the New Testament reflects 
apost- uh, 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 this, this whole concept that he wants. Whoops, I messed it. There it is. Is the New Testament simply the victor in a game of rock'em, sock'em robots? You put it to the test? No. It's not at all. So, what is the New Testament? What makes sense of this? Let me give you my suggestion. Put my suggestion to the test. My suggestion is the New Testament reflects apostolic teaching that drove the orthodoxy of the church. See, Paul was constantly telling people, test the spirits, test the teaching. The New Testament... So many people are troubled. Well, if God had wanted a New Testament that was truly going to be God's New Testament, why didn't he produce it with a table of contents in 33 AD when the Lord ascended into heaven? Well, first of all, the New Testament itself is a growth of the church outworking what the Spirit was working in to the church. That's not a foreign concept. Paul told the Philippians themselves to work out their salvation because God was at work in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul told the Romans that one of the advantages of being a Jew was that they had been entrusted with the oracles of God. This has always been a a God working through frail humanity to ensure that his communication to humanity comes to fruition in the way in which he has chosen it to come. And through so broken vessels that sometimes make copy mistakes, sometimes make loose things, all the rest, comes this with the promise but, but of, of God's working in him. But the whole time what's driving all of this is a drive for orthodoxy that reflects apostolic belief. The belief of the apostles. So, now, if it's apostolic belief driving the orthodoxy of the church and calling out the heresy, then what we ought to be able to do is put that to the test as well. And I'm going to suggest to you that the New Testament, rather than being the result of Rock'em Sock'em robots, it's the apostolic teaching that's reflected in the New Testament that was used to guide and inform the creeds. The Nicene Creed, orthodoxy, is apostolic Christianity. Now, you know, well, uh, apostolic Christianity, uh, the apostles never used the word Trinity. Well, of course they didn't. In fact, the early church didn't use the word Trinity. The word Trinity wasn't used until the English language. They were using a Latin word instead. Words develop. Concepts develop. We understand things. Things mature. Things ripen. We have a greater understanding. Listen, the early church, there were a number of people in the early church that thought the Lord Jesus was returning any day now. The New Testament community in Acts, one of the reasons they sold all their possessions and gave to the poor, they thought Jesus was coming back any moment. Paul's writing the Thessalonians. Paul thought Jesus might even come while Paul was still alive. And those of us who are still alive will meet him together in the air. 
But by the end of Paul's life, he's beginning to write different and say, hey, you're the next generation. You need to be teaching this. You need to hold on to this. Hold firm. Don't get misled. Don't be led astray. You know, test the spirits. All of these writings come as that apostolic generation is passing the baton to the next generation. There is a growth that happens, but it's a growth, an outcropping of apostolic Christianity. I want to tell you something. Can I be a lawyer for a moment? We don't have time for this, but we're going to do it anyway. Okay, this, my friends, is the U.S. Constitution. U.S. Constitution. Oops, hold on. We want it to be on screen. The U.S. Constitution. And one of the problems that judges have is they want to figure out if the Constitution ensures you a right to use birth control. Griswold versus Connecticut was the case. Now, here's what happens. They go back to the U.S. Constitution. Where does it say you can use birth control? It's not in there. But they say there are principles in here. And those principles, we understand better in today's life, and they are guide us in the trajectory. We can take those in a trajectory and use them to apply to today. And if it's something that the U.S. Constitution ensures as a right, you have that right. If it's something that's not in the U.S. Constitution and fairly construed, then you have a fight. And Scalia says no. And Breyer says yes. That's the fight of the Supreme Court. But the whole concept is you go back to the document itself. Now, New Testament Christianity, there are phrases and understandings and and the idea of the Trinity and other things that the church grew into that frankly were not the issues of that mission-minded early first century church. So it's not surprising, and we should not expect to find every piece of terminology and doctrine and theology all the way up through Aquinas and his expositions on natural law, or for that matter, anything today. Because we're trying to understand it and unwrap it on its trajectory. What the early church had was rock'em, sock'em robots, but it was between apostolic Christianity and syncretism, where people were taking things that were non-Christian and mesh, it's a mashup, if you know about mashups in music, where you take one song and mash it up with another, and it just seems to fit sometimes. The early church was finding, look, we've all met people who have a pet idea and they're trying to figure out how to mesh it into scripture, Larry Burgess. Um, I love Larry, I'm just teasing him. But, but, but within the framework of this, the question not becomes one. And so the church is fighting to keep apostolic Christianity pure. And that's the fight that was going on. And those are the creeds that were produced of orthodoxy. I give you a lot more detail of that in your lesson, but we're running out of time, so I need to move to the fruit for home. If you want it, read it in your lesson. If you don't, recycle it. Paul said in Romans 5.15, For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's, 
much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, that abounded for many. That's magnificent. That's not a new belief. That's not a rewrite of history. That is the core bedrock of our faith. I inherited Adam's sin. The the Old Testament Hebrew concept is that I was in my father's loins. So whatever my father did, I did. You take that lineage, the loinage, all the way back, and through the sin of Adam, I sinned. And I'm also born in the state of Adam after that sin as a fallen human. And so are you. But just as many died through that one man's trespass, much more have we the grace of God, not much more in terms of, of number, can't be, much more of greater significance that we have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. I'm going to hold to that belief. That's not made up. That's not a church invention. That's the bedrock of our faith. Point for home, fruit for home number two. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the free... I have righteousness. I got it. Not because I earned it. It was a free gift. And that's not an invention of the church. And it doesn't take a priest to give me that dispensation. I got it because Jesus Christ gave it to me. For free. I didn't even have to pay postage and handling. I got it. And I'm going to live in it because it changes how I live. It changes how I treat others, or it should. And it changes how I should treat myself. Last. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That beautiful Greek word, el peace, translated hope, but it means a confident expectation. And I'm going to await the fruition of my belief because Jesus Christ will come again. And he will take his. That's not a new invention of the church to get your money. That's a free gift that Jesus ensured that the apostles taught that is ours for the ages. If you're doing your memory work, we're trying to memorize as a class. First John this year. Keep going. Would you let me pray a prayer blessing over you and then we'll be done. Lord, I thank you so much for the chance to stand up today and to proclaim Uh, Lord, it just is is so incredible to have the opportunity to state these truths that are based in fact and in history that demonstrate readily not only your love for us, but your outreach to us and the security we have in you eternally. 
May we always be discerning people steadfastly, Father, seeking to understand you and what you have done for us. We pray through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.